Hello and welcome to the Oasis Church Podcast. This episode is taken from our series exploring the book of Jonah, as we discover together a story that is all about the goodness of God, a story that leads us to Jesus, and a story that invites us to be transformed by the wonder of who he is. Thanks for joining us. Fantastic. Hello, everyone. Great to be with you all uh, again this morning to carry on our new series exploring the book of Jonah. And last week, Adrian kicked things off uh, by looking a bit about how we are to approach the whole story together. Uh, And we heard the whole thing read out for us wonderfully by a number of different people from our community. Um, Today, we're going to zero in on the first couple of verses. So uh, I want to get straight into that. So if you've got a Bible with you, whether at home or online, uh, a printed one or a virtual one, do kind of get it up um, and read along with me. This is what it says. It will also appear on the screen uh, underneath, just kind of here, magically. Um, This is what it says, Jonah 1 from verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call against her, for the evil has come up before my face. And Jonah arose to flee from the face of the Lord to Tarshish. Okay, that's what we're looking at uh, today over the next 20, 25 minutes or so. And I want to start by talking uh, about everyone's favorite thing, and that is grammar. Uh, That's right, we're going to start about some grammar. I know there's high excitement levels in the room and online already. Uh, And sometimes uh, grammar really, really matters. And so, uh, for example, there's a big difference between uh, this sentence, which is going to appear on the screen, um, let's eat, Grandma. Uh, and this one, let's eat, Grandma. Um, sometimes grandma matters. Where you put the comma in that sentence will make a big difference to Grandma's uh, dinner plans. Um, one thing I was taught uh, as a child in terms of grammar starting um, was that you never start a sentence uh, with the word and. Uh, that's something that you don't do. Um, and yet, That's what we found in the verses I just read out. Um, We start with the word and. And unfortunately, if you are following along in your Bible, you might find that our our English Bible translators agree with my primary school English teachers. Uh, And so the word and that I read out right at the start of that verse doesn't actually appear in most of our English translations. Some of yours, it might say now. Uh, Others, it might just start straight away from uh, the word of the Lord. Um, But just as punctuation um, tells us something important about what grandma's getting up to for dinner. Starting like this in the book of Jonah tells us something important about the whole story that actually we're about to unpack. And see, the reason uh, to start not just a sentence, but a whole book with the word and is because you're intentionally and purposefully linking it to what's come before. So when we come to the book of Jonah, We're not coming to a story in isolation, but rather we're coming to something where the very first word clues us in that this should be read as part of God's big story about what he's doing in the world. A story that uh, Jesus declares, as we looked at last week from Luke 24, is all leading 
to him. It's all about him. It's all pointing to him. So right away, we are setting our expectations that this story is going to be tied in all sorts of different ways to the big picture of God and humanity and creation, of purpose and identity and redemption. And this isn't an interesting curiosity. It's because it's building and developing a picture in our mind over and over through the pages of the Bible as we do what Adrian's encouraged us to do and we bed ourselves deeply into scripture that helps to tell us who God is, who we are, how we should respond, how we should live. It's adding layer upon layer that shows us our need for God and shows us the magnificent extravagance of his love and grace. And actually, that's the whole point of today's talk in one sentence. My whole goal this morning is to help us deepen our understanding of our need for God and the extravagance of his love and grace, which draws us to Jesus and transforms us into the people he's calling us to be. So there we are. That's the first word, a word some of you don't even have in your translations. I promise we will speed up just a little bit uh, from that point on. Um, But I want to spend the rest of our time together exploring the three central characters who are introduced in these verses that we might see again, our need for God and the extravagance of his love and grace. So here's verse one again. And the word of the Lord. Okay, let's pause there. Um, I did say we would only be speeding up just a little bit. Um, The first character that we're introduced to in the narrative, uh, the first individual, isn't the person whose name is on the book. It isn't the kind of particular marine mammal uh, that we'll often find in in any kind of illustration or depiction uh, of the book of Jonah. It's the Lord. The Lord is the first person we're introduced to in this story. And how are we introduced to God? First of all, before anything else, as a God who speaks. And already, even at this point in the story, we're tracking not just with Jonah, but with the whole story of the Bible. It's right there on page one, how we introduce to God at the very beginning, a God who is at his very core, a God who speaks, a God whose desire is to communicate who he is, to bring life and light by the power of his word. That's who he is. Not a God who is silent in the face of darkness, not a God who hides in the shadows, not a God even who is sat waiting for us to come to him, but a God whose very nature, whose very essence is outgoing and overflowing in order to reveal who he is, in order to draw us into the world he's wanting to create. A God who comes to us, a God whose very nature and character is personal and relational. His heart is to draw others in and pour out his goodness and grace. See, that's what we find in this story, a people in desperate need of a life-giving word and God's desire to speak in order to bring his grace and mercy, which is beyond anything we can wrap our heads around. That's the pattern in this story and in the Bible again and again. And I know that sometimes it can be hard to find him when we're suffering or uh, we're finding sin a struggle or we're finding the pressures of work or family or any of the million other things uh, that we live with in the 21st century. 
It doesn't always seem to be easy to hear from God. It doesn't always seem easy to know this God as one who speaks to us, to receive, as we've sung and looked at already, his promises again. But our encouragement from the Bible is that God is always speaking and that his word always has power to bring life and light into any situation. His word always creates what it commands. It always brings hope where there is no hope, always faith where there's no faith, life where there is no life, just by speaking it into being. So as we come to this word, as we come to this story, we can come expecting God to speak to us. We come today, we come every week, we come as we sit down in that five minutes that we've grabbed to read the Bible. We come expecting God to speak. That's our posture, expecting him to challenge us and comfort us and call to us because that's what his very nature is to do. And our very nature now as those who are seeking to follow him is to be those who live expecting him to speak. So this is our first character, the first person introduced to us, a God defined by his word, powerful, relational, and introducing us to a story which is deeply connected to the rest of the Bible. Let's read on. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, our second character introduced. And whenever someone is introduced by name, uh, that always is a significant moment in the Bible. Names have just a really important significance. They're loaded with meaning that tell us something about who this person is, about what they're going to do. I don't know if you know the meaning of your name. Today, I know the meaning of mine. So the meaning of Richard is mighty ruler. Um, Make of that uh, what you will. Um, But I actually think, even reading this story, uh, that... As unlikely as it seems that I might become a mighty ruler uh, anytime soon, uh, if anything, it's even more unlikely uh, that Jonah is going to be someone who lives up to his name. See, Jonah uh, means dove. It means dove. That's what his name means. It's a, a symbol in the Bible of purity, uh, of truth spoken, of hope communicated. Immediately, when we hear the word Jonah, when we make the connection to the word dove, we're to think of the story of Noah, someone else who went through the waters to fulfill God's word. And that story, the dove, is there as the messenger of the new creation. And Amittai means faithfulness. Faithfulness, someone who holds firm to God's word, who trusts in him. So at the start of this story, we're introduced to the dove, the one of of purity and truthfulness, son of faithfulness. But as soon as we read the story, as soon as, in fact, we get beyond verse one, we know that that description doesn't apply to Jonah at all. In fact, out of the entire story, he is the most hard-hearted. He's the most hatred-filled. He's the most faithless character in the whole story. Jonah isn't the hero. And see, Jonah is someone who actually has already popped up uh, in the Bible. He appears in 2 Kings chapter 14 uh, as a prophet in the court of a king, and he's prophesying in favor of a wicked king, uh, a king of Israel who has just gone completely his own way, who is not following God's way at all. 
And Jonah appears and he prophesies that despite this wickedness, God is going to work through him to bless Israel. So already, even just by the word Jonah, even just by who this character is, we've got in our mind a connection to a story of God's unbelievable and unmerited mercy and grace. God working through deeply flawed individuals to bring about his blessing to the nations of the earth. Have we seen that pattern before in the Bible? Are we going to see it again in this story? Spoiler alert, yes we are. And the reason I think that we need to hear this again and again is because as much as we might like to think that, we've got it all sorted here in the 21st century. Sitting here, it'd be so easy for us, for me to think, oh, how foolish Jonah is as I read this story. How I'd never be like he would be. But the beauty of this book is that in its comedy, in its irony, how it functions as a mirror for us to hold up to ourselves, a mirror that forces us to confront, just as Jonah is confronted, our own pride, our own hard-heartedness, our own self-righteousness and prejudice. To place ourselves in the story that we're about to read and see that actually, I'm not all that different to Jonah. I run from God. I'm frequently selfish and hypocritical, blind to my prejudice, angry at God because he doesn't line up with my expectations of who he should be, what he should do. I see myself in the mirror of this story. And yet even as this book confronts me with that image, how much more does it present us with an image, a portrait of a God who will be revealed in Christ, a God of boundless, extravagant goodness and grace, a God who brings comfort in the darkest depths, a God who doesn't always give easy answers, but always gives himself, a God who's always for us. Let's keep reading. We've met the Lord We've met Jonah. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call against her, for their evil has come up before my face. And here we have the third central character in the story, not an individual, but a city, Nineveh, Nineveh. And Nineveh is somewhere that would be instantly recognizable to the original hearers of this story. They would know it to be the capital of the ancient Assyrian Empire. And if you are an Israelite uh, living in the time of this story and you hear the word Nineveh, you know exactly what that means. This is the enemy. This is the enemy. This is the empire that has invaded you that's brutalized you, that's torn your country apart with the intention of scattering your people to the corners of the earth and wiping your name out of existence. In fact, this is how uh, the prophet Nahum uh, describes Nineveh in Nahum 3. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. It's not surprising in one sense, therefore, that Jonah might choose to run away from a city like that. On the surface, 
as we get to this point in the story, you think, yeah, I can understand that. Um, see, the Bible doesn't shy away from reflecting the evil that's present in our world, the reality of the depths of the worst of what humans can do to one another. The story that comes through the Bible again and again is that when we as humans, whether as individuals or as societies, put our hope and confidence and security and identity in anything that's not God, when we try and build lives and nations on the idols of power or money or fame or pleasure, it only ever ends in brokenness. It only ever ends with the poorest and the most marginalized and the most vulnerable crying out for justice. This is the drumbeat of scripture proven again and again, proven every day across our communities, across our news feeds, our social media channels. This is what we've seen going on in our nation even this week. As we sit with the brokenness that we see in the Bible, that we see in the world around us, as we become more and more those who look at the state of the world around us and look inside our own hearts, with those who know the weight of the brokenness that exists there. That's what the Bible is telling us. Not shy away from these things, but sit with them, know the reality of them. And in fact, the more we center our lives on Jesus, the more we see more of him, the more we allow his wholeness and his righteousness and his beauty and his life to fill our gaze, the more we can't help but find our hearts breaking for every expression of brokenness and sin and pain and death that we see in the world around us. Because that's his heart too. God's heart breaks for these things. The more we're shaped into the likeness of Jesus, the more our hearts will break for them as well. And that's what we find in these opening verses of Jonah, a God who stands in judgment against all that is evil, all that is broken, and a God who does something about it. A God who hears the cries of the people and brings salvation. A God who's going to hold Nineveh to account for its evil. So the question becomes, how will God bring about his justice in this story? How is he going to hold them to account for what they've done? And Jonah knows the answer to this question. He knows the answer of how God brings about his justice on the earth. And so he runs. But the reason he runs, the reason as we find out in chapter four, isn't fear for his life, it's not fear of what these people might do to him. It's fear that what just might turn out to be the only way of truly overthrowing evil. The only way of truly setting things to rights is not God's justice expressed through retribution. That's what Jonah wants by his justice at work through his mercy. Jonah's true fear isn't that God will damn Nineveh. It's that he will somehow save them from themselves. 
And he's afraid that maybe the call that Israel has always lived with, the call that goes right through the Old Testament, the call to be that dove of faithfulness, revealing God to the nations and calling them to follow him, might just be beginning to be fulfilled. That God wants to do it through him and that he can't bear the thought of such lavish grace being poured out on those who he sees as so undeserving. The gracious God meets the vengeful prophet and the city of blood. Three characters who are already cluing us into the big story, cluing us into the patterns that the biblical authors are wanting us to hold in our minds as we read on about who God is and about how ultimately he's going to deal with the evil and brokenness in our world and bring restoration. And just about, uh, just in case we haven't spotted these, the story is about to dial them up so that we can't miss the point, so that we really don't miss it. As we read on, we'll find that everything in the whole story, in fact, is taken to the extreme. The storms that we find are more uh, wild. The events are more unexpected. The cities are more enormous. The people's reactions are more incredible. Why? So that we might come to see that God's love and grace is more extravagant than we could ever imagine. And that's how he's going to do it. That's the point we're to leave with, that if God can work in the midst of this situation, in the midst of this story, that if you dial the scale of everything up to 100, if you take the people's evil up to 100, if you take the prophet's uselessness up to 100, even this doesn't exhaust God's supplies of mercy and grace. Even this doesn't exhaust God's ability to bring about transformation and restoration, his capacity for light and hope in the midst of the darkness. If even this doesn't come close to what God is capable of in this story, in this situation, in this context, well, what might God be able to do through someone else? What might God be able to do through a faithful Israelite? What might he be able to do through someone else who's also caught up in a time of deeply flawed nations? A time of brutal empires? Someone who comes and speaks the ultimate word of the Lord? Someone who goes through the waters in order to bring about restoration and renewal. What might God do through the true dove of faithfulness? Someone who, rather than running away, willingly steps into the chaos waters of death and comes out the other side. Someone who doesn't shy away from God's righteous condemnation of all that's evil and broken and painful in our world, but shoulders it himself in order to extend a grace more extravagant, a mercy more unbelievable than we could ever comprehend to all who might receive, to me and to you. What might God be able to do through someone like that? See, in the prophet 
who runs away. We see the son who didn't. We see the one who is swallowed up by an instrument of death and yet turns it into a vehicle of life. We see the one who bears in himself all of that brokenness, all of that sin, all of that suffering, every fractured relationship that we find within ourselves and between us and God and between us and others. We see one who takes it to the cross, who carries it there with him and puts it to death. We find justice and mercy meeting that we might know that nobody is beyond God's reach. Nobody can run further than he can find in order to pour out his love and his goodness. Not Nineveh, not us. That we might know that this God is one who has committed himself to the restoration of this world an ultimate word from an ever-speaking God that he is going to bring about all that he has promised and that he's going to do it through Jesus and through him in us. And this is where all of this is leading us. All these patterns, all these markers, if they're signposts to a dead end, then they're no good to us at all. If this is a nice story that links in with other things in the Bible that we look at and think, oh, that was interesting, and we go away unchanged, it's no good. See, why we're exploring this story over the next few weeks isn't ultimately so that we can know more about Jonah. It's to lead us to Jesus again and again to, prevent, uh, to present this God revealed in Christ to us and to call us to respond to him, a God who will never let us down, who will never run away, who will always chase after us in order to bring us comfort and grace and purpose and life. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life, says Jesus in John chapter 5. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Why? So that we might come to him. So that we might come to him and have life. So that we might come in all our brokenness, in individuals and in a world that is crying out for him. And behold again the magnificent extravagance of his love and his mercy a love which draws us to Jesus and transforms us more into the people he's calling us to be. And that's our invitation today. Whether for the first time or the thousandth time, as we read this story, as we ponder on these characters to come to Jesus, to know that all the promises of scripture, all the words of the prophet, everything has been leading to him Everything's been pointing to him. And our invitation now is to come, is to come and receive the God who has come to us, the God who has spoken his word, the God who has drawn us near.
So will we receive? Will we come to this Jesus again? Will we behold him? Will we see his image in this story and allow him to transform us as he meets with us again? In just a moment's time, uh, the band are going to come up and join me and we're going to sing again about this Jesus, about this God of love and life, about a God of boundless, extravagant grace. Before we do that, I just want to pray. I want to pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you that we are never too far from you. That though we might be way more like Jonah than we want to be, you are a God who always chases us down, who is always running after us, and whose desire is always that we would know through your Son, by the power of your Spirit, the wonder of your resurrection life. That we might know, God, you there with us in every circumstance and situation. And that we might know you calling us again to carry your word to a world that is hurting and broken, a world that is in desperate need of you. So Jesus, we come and we ask by your spirit, you'd enable us to behold you again, that you would draw us near and you'd fill us with your life. Amen.